We have two short passages of scripture this morning as we're in this all-in series. Uh, The first is from Colossians chapter 3. Paul writes, Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. And then in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, from the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. This morning, we're going to talk about serving Jesus through our work. Let's pray for a moment. God, we ask that you will continue to guide us and grant us wisdom as we think through how to live a life that honors Jesus, the one who has died for us and who has showered us with his grace and love. And so I pray that you'll give us collective wisdom in understanding your word and then the heart to live it out. I pray that this week, wherever we go, that you will walk with us and that you'll guide us, that you'll grant us the wisdom we need for the decisions that are ahead of us, that you'll give us the tenacity that we need to to live out our faith when we might be the only one who's listening to you and following you in the room sometimes, and that you will also give us the creativity to think about how we enjoy life, make the most of the opportunities that we have, and really, really live to glorify you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Author Tom Nelson and his family were driving along the Pacific Coast Highway near the rugged shoreline of Point Arguello in Santa Barbara County, California. As he was scanning the breathtaking views that you see when you drive up Route 1, if you've ever done that, on the California coast, his thoughts began to drift back to a tragic event that happened along those same shores near Santa Barbara on September 8, 1923. A squadron of United States destroyers was heading south down the California coast, and they were led by the USS Delphi. They were on a training mission going from San Francisco down to San Diego. What they couldn't see was that a thick bank of fog was ahead of them that would soon obscure their vision. And when the navigator on the USS Delphi directed a column of ships at that point, he led them to take a turn just a few degrees east. Nelson describes what happened this way. I want to read this so I get it technically accurate. Relying on the skill of his navigator, Captain R.A. Dawes confidently cruised through the fog, maintaining a fast speed of 20 knots. Suddenly, the USS Delphi smashed broadside into the rocky Point Arguello shoreline. The sheer force of the massive collision of welded steel and jagged rock split the hull of the USS Delphi in half. Before Captain Dawes could notify the rest of the squadron, six other destroyers had run aground on the rocky shoreline, their once impressive hulls bruised and battered, listing in the pounding waves. On that fateful, foggy day off California's rocky coast, the United States lost not only some very fine sailors, the Navy also lost more combat ships than they would during the entire course of World War I. Imagine that. Nelson uses that story to point out the dangers of operating in conditions when we are fogged in by the combination of hazardous circumstances and poor information and a fast-changing future. 
That is exactly the dilemma that many people in this room face every day right now in the midst of a very uncertain work environment combined with the past two and a half years of the COVID era. We're fogged in. It's hard to see into the future, to see with clarity what is going on ahead of us. A few weeks ago, we began a new series that I called All In, which is built around one foundational question. What does it mean for us to be all in for Jesus? We say things like that. I love Jesus. He's my best friend. He gave everything for me. Why wouldn't I be all in for Jesus? And so we're asking some hard questions about what it means to be all in for Jesus. In the midst of this series, in part one, we talked about the stewardship of life's opportunities. And then last week, we talked about sowing and reaping, which has to do with financial stewardship. Today in part three, we're going to look at vocational stewardship or our stewardship of work and and the work opportunities before us. So I'm calling this message, Serving Jesus at Work. Welcome to North River's Sundays at 10 a.m. May God's richest blessings fall on you who are with us here in Pembroke today and especially on those of you who are watching online. If you're with us online today, please do your best to let us know how you're doing. We'd like to extend a personal touch that happens normally around here when we're, we're all here in person, but for you, you're going to have to take an initiative and send us an email or send us some kind of a note, or if you're watching on the online portal right now, in the chat room, make a few comments about how life is going and, and stay in touch with us. If you want to let me know, just send a quick email to paul at northriverchurch.org. And I'd love to continue the conversation. So just to make it easy for you to connect back with us, you can text the word hello to 781-227-8765. That begins a simple text message conversation. You can go to our website, northriverchurch.org. Look for the I'm new button, and that will lead you to a connection card. Or if you're here in the room, you can go to our welcome center and ask for a connection card. Love to hear from you. Love to hear what is going on in your life. Again, the question we're asking in these uh, several weeks that we're going through this summer series is, what does it mean to be all in for Jesus? So when we translate that to work, or for those of you who have retired, for the difficult challenges that you still face, because in some ways our work never stops, what does it mean for us to be all in for Jesus when it comes to work? Is there evidence that the earliest Christians were all in for Jesus when they left the gathering places where they were worshiping and they went back to work? And will this help us think through our challenges at work as well? Some simple observations about this concept. First, it flows from Jesus' mandate, his, his final words to the disciples. We find these in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Just before Jesus ascended back into the heavens, he said to his disciples, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. We call call this Jesus' mandate where he was telling his disciples what they were to do next. Notice that Jesus didn't tell them what kind of work they would focus on or that would feed their families. Think of it, the original disciples had been in the fishing business or tax collectors or had worked very ordinary jobs before signing on with Jesus. There was not any career path for pastors, evangelists, or missionaries that existed at that time. He didn't point them to a pool of resources that were going to make all of this happen for them. 
Perhaps they would go back to work. Perhaps they would be supported by friends as Jesus was. If you remember, there was a faithful group of women who financially supported Jesus. We sometimes leave them out of the picture, focusing only on the the disciples who traveled with Jesus and shared his ministry. However, they were resourced by a group of women that Luke identifies in Acts chapter 8. Among them were Joanna, the wife of Chuzza, who was managing Herod's household. Herod was the, the king of Israel at that time. It was Mary Magdalene that Jesus had driven demons out of, and Susanna, and a few others who are not named. And Luke tells us that they were supporting Jesus and the disciples out of their own means, which meant that either these were women who had personal wealth that they were digging into in order to fuel the ministry of Jesus, or they were working and they were using their sums of money in order to further the mission of Jesus. But all of them were given this missional mandate from Jesus. Specifically, they were all told that they would be Jesus' witnesses. Okay, what does a witness do? A witness tells others about what they have seen and what they have heard. If you are ever summoned to be a witness in a trial, that's all you're asked about. Not to give your whole life story, not to tell everything you know, but to be a witness about something that is specifically related to that trial, what you have seen and what you have heard. And that's what the earliest Christians did. Geographically, though, Jesus gives them some directional points. Notice that there were three geographical pieces of the focus that comes from Jesus. They would start locally in Jerusalem. That was the city where the first church existed. And then they would focus regionally in Judea and Samaria, the two nearest regional areas that could be reached with the gospel. And then when they had completed that task, they would think globally, and he tells them, you're going to take this to the ends of the earth. And by the time the last of the disciples had died, they had taken it to most of the known world and other disciples were taking it even farther by that point. This mission mandate applies to everyone who is a disciple of Jesus. Now sometimes when we hear that term disciple, we think, oh, they're the experts. They're the ones who walked very closely with Jesus. But you have to remember that's not what that term means. The the term in the Greek language that gets translated as our word disciple in English literally meant a pupil or a learner who sits at the feet of the master and learns from the master and then takes those principles and puts them into work, puts them to work in life. And so we are learners. We are not experts. I'm continually learning. You're continually learning. It's the term that Jesus used when he said, go and make disciples of all nations, of all people groups everywhere in the world. So this challenge to serve Jesus at work flows from Jesus' mandate. Here's the second thought. Work becomes a setting to let your light shine. In Matthew chapter 5, in the earliest chapter of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, in the same way let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. As I've said, this challenge comes to us as part of the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew there tells us that Jesus saw crowds of people and when he saw them, he went up on a mountainside and he sat down and his disciples came to him and he began to teach them. This reveals to us that there were two audiences that were there that day and that Jesus had in mind for this particular challenge. 
It first had to do with the original disciples who were sitting up close as he was training them and teaching them and commissioning them to go forward and leading with the development of God's people. But he was also speaking to the crowds. And part of what led him to that mountainside was there were crowds of people who were flocking around them. And so there are crowds of people like us today who are continually trying to learn from Jesus. Here in this section of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus uses two descriptions. First he tells them you are the salt of the earth, and then he says that you are the light of the world. One is about preservation, so he's saying that as we serve Jesus, if we do that wholeheartedly and with integrity and following his words and his challenges, there's a preserving impact that we have on the society around us. Our society, whether the the media notices or not, whether politicians notice or not, needs us. Because it is when people who are following the wisdom of the God who created us, it creates a preserving impact in the midst of our, our, our society as a whole. The second challenge is to be the light of the world. It's about influence. You have influence. That's what Rick was saying right now uh, a few moments ago when we were talking about the Leadership Summit. You have influence. Whether you see yourself as a leader or not, I have influence. And how do we make the most of that is part of what we're thinking through. Most of the people who heard the Sermon on the Mount went to work the next day. Think about that. They wouldn't be sitting on the hill after Jesus had moved on. What did they do? Some of them would have been carpenters, fishermen, builders, bankers, homemakers, government workers, cleaners, teachers. Some were in food prep and a whole host of other things. And they all heard Jesus say that they were the light of the world. If Jesus was here addressing this particular audience of people today, I think one of the things that he would tell us about this topic, about serving him through our work, is that you are the light of the world. Will you say that with me? You are the light of the world. Now look at somebody else and say it to them. You are the light of the world. You know why that's true? If the Holy Spirit is operating in your life and you've given your heart to Jesus and you want to honor him in the way that you live, you are the light of the world. What you do makes a difference. You carry that beacon of light with you And in the way that you live, the way that you talk to other people, the way that you treat other people, we have an impact on other people. You carry that light with you, you spread that light around, and that light begins to go out with other people. We have a preserving impact, and we also have influence. Knowing these things impacts the way that we think about our roles of stewards of the things that God has given us. And one of the challenges that he's given us is to serve him through our work. Then we take this up a notch. The Jesus factor allows us to serve him at all times and in all situations. Paul writes in Colossians 3.23, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. This is what I call the Jesus factor. Okay, what is the Jesus factor? The Apostle Paul shows us that any form of work can be done as working for the Lord. There's great flexibility that comes with this phrase, whatever you do. How many possibilities could be wrapped up in this whatever you do aspect? 
It sure seems that this leads to unlimited applications. Think about who was writing this to us. This comes from the Apostle Paul. Paul lived in a variety of places. He also spent years in prison. And as he was writing this letter, he was writing from house arrest in Rome. This means that he was writing from his experience. And he has tested this Jesus factor out in some rather difficult circumstances and difficult settings. The Jesus factor also allows us to turn serving into something else, into worship toward God. I shared this with a friend who was in prison one time when I was visiting him, and it had a revolutionary impact on him. He realized that he could turn even the worst day of his life into worshiping Jesus through whatever menial task that he had within, within that prison. The next time that I went to visit him, he told me that he had shared this with his cellmate and with a couple of other guys who were all reading the Bible together. And it was beginning to radiate through these men in the midst of a prison situation. Now think about this. If that principle can transform the way that a person serves within a prison, think of the way that it can impact the way that you and I live with greater freedoms that are available to us. If this is true, whatever we do, Think about how this can transform your job. Okay, for those of you who retired, you may not have a job that you go into, but there's still difficult tasks that you take on. And there's some things that you'd rather not do, and yet you still have to do them. If you work for a boss who is difficult, Paul is saying you can do this as unto the Lord instead of just thinking about this boss. If you have a task that is unpleasant or demanding, you can do it as unto the Lord, as a gift to him. Your worship does not have to take place in a church. It doesn't have to involve singing or music, although some people might sing or hum or whistle while you do work. That's worship too if you're thinking about God. But this gives you the ability to turn something that you are doing, something that may even be difficult or unpleasant, into worship toward God. Think of the brilliance of what Paul is saying here to us. That he gives us the ability to turn the most difficult challenges and obstacles before us into opportunities to worship God. Last night, Sue and I were having dinner with some friends of ours who are Jewish, and they care about us, and and they'll always ask about church. And so as we're leaving the restaurant, this lady leans over and she says, oh, are you preaching tomorrow? I said, yeah, I am. I said, we have one service at 10 a.m. on Sunday, and you can watch online if you want to, and told her how she could do that. And she said, well, what are you talking about tomorrow? Give me the, the quick nugget. I mean, that's always the best test for a message like this. And I'm thinking, okay, how am I gonna explain this to a person who's a, a rather secular Jewish person, very rarely goes to synagogue? And I said, you know, there's this brilliant principle that the Apostle Paul wrote in the New Testament about how we can turn our work into worship, that we can do even the most difficult things as a way of honoring God because ultimately we have a God who works. He's been working ever since day one of creation. He has a really good sense of balance between knowing when to rest because he stopped on the seventh day and he tells us we have to find that balance too. But there's this really great principle. She looked at me like, She'd never heard this before. You know when like a, a, a dog kind of cocks his head? As if, and she kind of cocked her head a little bit as if to say, I've got to think about that. You mean you can, you can worship God through the way that you work? And I left her with that, wondering, 
okay, what is their conversation going to be like in the way home in that car? Does she think that I'm absolutely crazy? Or did this sink in a little bit and make her think about the connection between the workspace and the way that we worship? For Christians, there's no such thing as the sacred and the secular when we embrace this principle. It absolutely obliterates that line because we bring the way that we serve our God into the workplace, which transforms the workplace into a place where we can silently worship God through the way that we act, through the way that we answer, through the way that we talk, through the way that we carry out our tasks, even what is going on motivationally in the heart about why we do what we do. Week one, we talked about how Jesus was all in for us and calls us to be all in for him. Week two, last week, we talked about how when we're all in for Jesus, our attitude toward financial stewardship flows from a desire to honor God by being fruitful. So the challenge is to be fruitful with the opportunities that we have. He wants us to bear fruit. God establishes that very early in the Garden of Eden. Jesus picks up that theme as he's talking with his disciples a few nights before he died. Go and bear fruit, he tells them. Here's the big idea for this week. All-in Christians are able to turn tasks into opportunities to serve Jesus. I'd, I'd like to mend that. All-in Christians are able to turn tasks into opportunities to worship and serve Jesus. Here's the last thought. Serving Jesus in our work leads to a reward. Look at what Paul writes here in Colossians 3.24, the very next verse. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. I deliberately did not focus on verses 23 and 24 together. I wanted to establish the principle that comes in verse 23 that we can turn our work into worship. Now Jesus tells us that those who do their work as unto the Lord will receive a reward. First, he describes this as an inheritance. You know what's cool about an inheritance? You don't know when it's coming, and you don't know exactly what it will be. But it's a neat thought that there's an inheritance out there. Maybe some of you have been written into uh, an older family member as well, and, and there's an inheritance coming your way. And as a cool thought, they, they buried that on a piece of paper, and only their lawyer and them know what that is, unless they go through the act of telling you. Maybe some of you have been on the receiving end of some of that, when a parent died, or an uncle died, or a grandparent died, and they gave you something. You feel blessed when that happens. You didn't see it coming. It's like, wow, this is amazing. That didn't have to happen. I'm loved. They cared about me. Here Paul says, whatever you do that is turned into worship unto the Lord, that work will one day bring about an inheritance. Then he describes it a second way, and he says it's a reward. And then we're given this reminder. It is the Lord Christ that you are serving. An inheritance always comes from somebody else's riches. And the concept of a reward ties it to specific tasks or the manner in which we do our work. So God is watching. It matters to him what we do with the opportunities before us. It matters how we live out our faith as his children, as his ambassadors, wherever we go. And we forget this a lot. We need to be reminded of it. 
We are sent. We are people who are sent to all different locations throughout this region by tomorrow morning and throughout this world. And we are his ambassadors at all times. So he's watching. He wants to reward us, but he wants us to represent him well. Have you ever had a job that had few rewards? Sometimes your pay isn't just enough to to motivate you. The Jesus factor changes all of that. Every job can be done as working unto the Lord. Every job can be approached by working for the rewards that Jesus gives. Every job can be transformed with the thought that I am serving Jesus Christ himself. All right, I want to add one final thought uh, before we lead. I, I was reading what other pastors have written about this concept, and there was a guy named Steve Malone who came up with a very simple acrostic. And why offer this? Because I think this is the kind of thing that can stick in the brain and help us. How do we be nicer at work? N-I-C-E-R, which is an acrostic. Five thoughts. First, no compromise. He based this all on the life of Daniel. If you go back and read Daniel in the Old Testament. In Daniel 1.8 it says, But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself that way. We won't go into the technical details, but Daniel kept a kosher diet and felt it was important. No compromise. And God blessed him through that. The second word is integrity. Uh, uh, Daniel 6, chapter 4, chapter 6, verse 4. At this, the administrators and the satraps, or government officials, tried to find ground for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. In other words, he had integrity. No compromise, integrity. The third word is compassion. Daniel had compassion for others. In Daniel 2.24, there was an opportunity when the king was going to get rid of all of the other government executives unless somebody could interpret this dream that he'd had. Daniel said he, he went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to execute the wise men of Babylon, and he said to him, do not execute the wise men of Babylon. Take me to the king, and I will interpret the dream for him. Daniel could have just interpreted the dream, but he also had compassion for people who were going to die for no reason. Fourth was excellence. Daniel 6.3, now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. And then the R stands for remember whose you are. Then Daniel returned to his house and explained the matter to his friends Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. He urged them to to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, the king's dream. This is from Daniel chapter 2. And during the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. When Daniel turned the problem back to God, God gave him the solution that he needed in the middle of the night. Here's our big idea for today. All in Christians are able to turn tasks into opportunities to worship Jesus by serving him, not earthly masters. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for these summer Sunday mornings when we can come and be reminded of truths that invigorate us, maybe even inspire us to live for you. And now I ask that you would grant us the heart, the wisdom, the ability to follow through. We long to honor you. We long to put your word into practice. 
We come here seeking to get coached up, seeking to, to honor you with our songs and our words and our prayers, to hear from you. And we hear from you through your word today. So now, help us to live this out as best we can, one day at a time, and to follow Jesus as all-in Christians. It's in his name we pray. Amen.